Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Man from UNCLE by Michael Avalone. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. Mr. Avalone's book is based on the American TV spy show from the 1960s that was trying to take advantage of the James Bond craze at the time. The book, which has been out of print for a good 40 years, introduces you to both UNCLE, the United Network Command for Law and Enforcement, and to their deadly counterpart spy organization, Thrush. It's also the first time that you're introduced to the uncle agents, Napoleon Solo. This first introductory novel concerns what appears to be a deadly plague. In a series of towns across the world, people start turning into mindless, babbling creatures and die days later. Doctors are baffled as to the cause. But to the members of uncle, the only answer is a new deadly weapon for world conquest being tested by thrush and they have to stop them at all costs. And now, the man from UNCLE. Prologue. The UNCLE Organization. United Network Command for Law and Enforcement. There is a row of buildings in New York City, a few blocks from the United Nations building. At the south end of the row is a three-story white stone, which appears fairly new in comparison to the brownstone buildings, which make up the rest of the street. At the north end is a public garage. The brownstones are occupied by a few lower-income families living above the decrepit shops and businesses that rent the space on the street level. Del Floria's tailor shop occupies the street-level space in a brownstone near the middle of the block. The first and second floors of the white stone are taken up by an exclusive key club restaurant known as the Mast Club. On the third floor of the white stone is a sedate suite of offices, the entrance to which bears the engraved letters U-N-C-L-E. In this suite of offices, a rather ordinary group of people handle mail, meet, and do business with visitors, and in general seem to be a normal organization engaged in some special charity project or a fund foundation operation. All these buildings are owned by the organization known as UNCLE. If it were possible to peel away the outer, decaying brownstone skin of the four old buildings, a surprising edifice would be found. For behind the walls is one large building, consisting of a complex modern office setup of three floors, a steel maze of corridors and suites containing brisk, alert young personnel of many races, creeds, and backgrounds, as well as complex masses of modern machinery and equipment all of a highly technological nature. There are no staircases in the building. Four elevators handle vertical traffic. Below the basement level, an underground channel has been cut through from the East River, leading out to the sea. On the roof of the building is a large neon-lit advertising billboard whose supporting pillars contain a high-powered shortwave antenna as well as elaborate receiving and sending gear. This is the heart, brain, and body of the organization known as UNCLE. The personnel of the organization are peculiarly multinational, and their line of work tends to cross national boundaries with such nonchalance that a daily shortwave message for the remote Himalayas fails to flutter any eyebrows. This, even though there is no recorded wireless in this Himalayan area according to the printed international code books, 
An organizational chart for UNCLE would read as follows. Section 1, Policy and Operations. Section 2, Operations and Enforcement. Section 3, Enforcement and Communications. Section 4, Communications and Security. Section 5, Security and Personnel. Napoleon Solo is the Chief Enforcement Agent for UNCLE. Chapter 1. What Happened to Stuart Fromes? A corpse is always interesting. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, or king. Who a man is and how he died is of far greater interest to mortal man than, say, the price of eggs in Istanbul. The corpse that comes into being for strange and exotic reasons, of course, is of paramount interest to the police and law enforcement agencies of the world. And while all of us are touched in some phantom way because another human being has been singled out by the Grim Reaper, the death of a special agent is naturally a vital matter to the body of men and women of which the corpse was a member. Stuart Fromes was just such a man, and just such a corpse. Fromes died in Obertiesendorf, Germany, at approximately 5.15 German Central Time. He was 37 in excellent physical condition, a master field chemist for the organization known as UNCLE. In Korea, he had won a silver star for staying seven days on Heartbreak Ridge before a hand grenade had put him out of action. In Obertiesendorf, there were no battles, no medals. There was only the long, unending, far-into-the-night research which had brought him to the little town below the Bavarian Alps in the first place. On the day he was to die, he did three interesting things. At five o'clock that afternoon, Stuart Fromes was taking a bath in the wooden tub placed at the rear of the tiny laboratory he had set up in Frau Morgenstern's home. He was thoughtfully soaping his lean, angular body when he experienced the odd dizziness which had become particularly chronic this past week. Fromes waited no longer. He stepped naked from the tub, heedless of the soap and chill of the drafty house. His bare feet sloshed across the wooden floor to the rear of the laboratory. There, a rickety wooden cage revealed a carrier pigeon nestling quietly. With quick, deliberate movements, Fromes affixed a tiny banded scroll to the pigeon's right claw and set it free. He hardly waited to see it spring for the eastern sky, its wings fluttering rapidly. The second interesting thing that Stuart Fromes did was to fall suddenly flat on his face in the center of the room, kicking over a low table on which he had set his clothes. He began to thrash about violently, arms and legs twitching uncontrollably. Had anyone been present, he would have been amazed and terribly frightened to hear Stuart Fromes third in the 1947 class of Cordell, begin to babble incoherently. The walls of the laboratory echoed with a string of moaning, gibbering sounds. The dampness of his naked body left small patches of moisture wherever his vibrating body touched. And then Stuart Fromes did the last interesting thing before he died. Through the haze of pain and complete seizure of his limbs and muscles, 
he reached blindly for the clothing scattered on the floor, his coat, trousers, shirt, which had toppled from the low table. Stuart Fromes was dying, slowly and horribly. Yet even as he rolled around on the floor like a frenzied mad dog, he began to dress himself. Alexander Waverley fingered one of his many unspoked pipes in the quiet offices of Uncle. He was unhappy. As the head of policy and operations, he was no alarmist. Yet the transatlantic message from Paris headquarters had been upsetting. Stuart Fromes had been on to something. That had been most apparent from his reports of the last few hectic weeks. Now, suddenly, Fromes was dead. Five men of various nationalities guided the policy operations of Uncle. Waverley was one of that very select five. Yet a casual observer would be forgiven if he thought this elderly-looking man to be a gentle old college professor who tended toward crabbiness. Waverley pocketed his cold briar pipe and walked to the wide, high window of his office, the only window in the entire fortress known as Uncle. Before him spread a sunny panoramic view of the United Nations building, poking like a modernistic glass finger from the depths of the East River. Napoleon Solo, Waverley said aloud. Of course. The Fromes affair was obviously a matter which called for the special talents of the chief enforcement officer of Uncle. Clucking to himself as if chiding a personal error, he hurried back to his desk. A row of five enamel buttons lay at right angles to his fingertips. One orange, one red, one gold, one blue, and one yellow. Waverly thumbed the blue one. There was a click as a connection was made somewhere in the office. A smooth, unworried voice abruptly filled the room, seeming to emerge from the four walls. Section 4. Cablegram. Waverly said, putting his forefinger to his nose. Napoleon Solo, Hotel International, Paris. Yes, Mr. Waverly. Frome's dead in Oberthiesendorf, Germany. Claim body immediately. Your uncle greatly upset. Waverly paused. Remember to call his mother. William de Prato sends his best. Is there more to the message, sir? No, that's all. Do you want me to repeat any of it? No, sir. Waverly thumbed the blue button again. He smiled, thinking about Solo. If past performances were any yardstick, Solo had already found Paris a most charming place to be assigned. He'd much rather his top agent spend more time on enhancing his mind at the Louvre, say, or even the left bank, but Solo was one of those young men eternally inclined to study the opposite sex. Waverly snorted to himself, turning to the mystery of Stuart Fromm's sudden untimely demise. That was something that demanded his immediate attention. Is anything wrong, Napoleon? You look so worried. Is the cablegram bad news of some kind? No, but I would like you to excuse me for a minute or so. A business matter, pet. 
Napoleon, look at me. Is that from another woman? Napoleon Solo studied the long-legged brunette raising herself from a languorous position on the gilded love seat. Denise Ramont was worth more than one look. Her amber eyes looked beautiful even in anger. Her silver lame gown shimmered as she rose, emphasizing the almost feline beauty of her body. Solo reflected briefly that the Hotel International's plush brocaded Suite 411 was a completely appropriate setting for her. She was like some regal holdover from another century of French beauty, with just enough Americanizing to make her doubly interesting. He smiled at her. If the cablegram were from another woman, I'd simply tear it up and put on another long-playing record, my dear. She lifted her chin, eyes sparkling. Very well, then. Go read your important cablegram in privacy. I'll mix us another aperitif. We can get back to where we were soon enough. N'est-ce pas? He winked. Be back in a jiffy, beautiful. She nodded, watching him move toward the bedroom. The yellowish lights of the suite seemed to cast a halation around Napoleon Solo's form. Denise Ramon sighed softly and shook her head, bewildered by the unexpected sexual appeal of this man. He had become far more than she had bargained for. Yesterday in the Champs-Élysées, she had picked him up as he sauntered on the sunny thoroughfare. He had been easy to pick out of the crowd of tourists on a spree. The foolishness she had invented about lost directions had not deceived him. She knew that. And she had not intended that they should. And so they flirted and dined at Maxime's that evening. And that was that. They had spent the night here in Suite 411. She shivered in memory. An interesting man, this Solo. An extraordinary charmer. It was a pity he'd have to die. In the bedroom, Solo moved like a cat. His movements reflected tensile strength and an economy of effort that marked him for the trained athlete he was. His face, oddly boyish and pleasant, could become a cold mask of intellectual resolve when he was not smiling. And he was not smiling now. Waverly's cablegram, held under a bed lamp, was upsetting. Napoleon Solo Hotel International, Paris, France. Frome's dead in Obertiesendorf, Germany. Claim body immediately. Your uncle greatly upset. Remember to call his mother. William de Prado sends his best. Waverly. Frome's was dead. Solo scowled and the lines of his face hardened. William de Prado sends his best. It was quite unlike Waverly to be so cryptic in a straight, harmless telegram. The death of Fromes was a blow, of course, and a personal one which Solo, who had known and liked the man, felt deeply. But the reference to Bill de Prado was something else again. Booby traps for booby troops, Solo said, tasting each word as he said it. That was Bill de Prado's best, the one G.I. line of advice to all combat rookies. Solo folded the cablegram and put it into his coat pocket. There was something damnably odd here. But before he could further explore the meaning of Waverly's message, Denise Ramon screamed shrilly from the living room, 
It was a high, thin scream of mortal terror. Chapter 2 Some of my best friends are spies. Sola reached the door of the bedroom in something less than one second, and he paused there, eyes taking in the scene in quick, darting glances. At first the tableau seemed just as it had been when he'd left, Denise half reclining on the love seat, but now every line and angle of her body was taut, frozen, as if she dared not make the slightest movement. Her beautiful face was a pinched mask of horror. The amber eyes seemed fixed on a point before her, between the love seat and the carved oak coffee table. Her hands were clutching the golden bolsters of the chair, and yet there was nothing in the room. Solo eased toward her, his hands streaking reflexively for his shoulder holster. He restrained a low curse, realizing that the romantic tenor of the evening had made him injudicious enough to leave his gun somewhere other than on his person. Moving closer, he held his breath, eyes on the woman. It was then that the noise came to him. Suddenly, unbearably, there was a tingling sensation in his eardrums, a light, almost feathery sound, like the low hum of a generator. He stopped short. Then he all moaned. My ears! Mon Dieu! It was a cry of agony. Solo shook his head, trying to clear it. The tingling feeling had begun to expand so that his brain seemed alive with the concerted buzz of a horde of bees. He felt his body tremble violently. Denise had begun to writhe in torment, and still the low, humming, throbbing sound continued, rising in volume so that it filled the entire room. The lights danced before Solo's straining vision. The details of the room, the furniture, drapes, paintings, tilted with alarming abruptness. The floor seemed to move under his feet. The maroon carpet twisted in Dali-esque convolutions. The sound expanded, moving to the walls as though it were something solid that needed a vessel to contain it. Solo staggered, fighting the waves of dizziness that rolled over him. It was difficult to breathe now. His hearing had magnified so the slightest tremor of sound made him want to scream, to run, to hide. Panic tried to hold him and arrest his mind. The hum of sound grew louder. Solo moved with fierce momentum. He had hurled himself toward the wall near the door. Still the noise in his head rose with tremendous, shrieking violence. He fell down, literally hammered to his knees by the force of the sound. Yet he crawled to the base of the wall, and his dazed eyes found the square metal frame that housed the wall plug. Thank God it was not in use. Working in a screaming, smothering blanket of pain, hands shaking almost uncontrollably, he managed to find his keychain. With a last thrust of concentrated will, he rammed the first one he found into the exposed wall circuit. There was a blinding, flashing crackle of blue flame, and he was flung back from the wall by the short-circuited electrical currents. The room was plunged into darkness, sudden, inky midnight. But the sound stopped. Solo lay on the floor, face ground into the carpeting. 
Waves of relief rolled over him. His body stilled as the humming, throbbing noise receded like the distant, fading sound of a jet engine. The abrupt silence was nearly as stupefying as the humming had been. For a while there was only the racking, terrible sobs of the girl on the love seat. The blinding pain that had filled his head faded in the wake of the sound, leaving only a sense of utter weariness and near demoralization. Sola remained on the floor, breathing in great gulps of air. He could feel his heart beating furiously. And then that slowed down, too. The only thing that remained of the awesome sound was the amazing sensation of the noises of the sea battering a shoreline. Later, he could not tell exactly how much later, he got to his feet. He reached into his pocket and drew out a pencil flash and thumbed it on. It showed him Denise Fermont lying exhausted on the lounge. He shook himself, moving unsteadily to the escritoire on the opposite wall. His gun was in the top drawer. It was more Luger than anything else, bearing a slight resemblance to the P-38 of World War II origin. Solo's automatic was unique, however. There was an engraved S stamped on the heavy butt. He couldn't remember when he had ever felt more relieved to have it in his hand. The persistent, piercing sound had rocked him, as few things ever have. He returned to the girl after he had found one of the ornamental candelabra on the marble mantelpiece in the center of the room. Candlelight would have to do for now, since any electrical power in the suite was out. In any other circumstance, Denise Fremont would have looked enticing by candlelight. The spray of burning radiance washed over her curves, making her body gleam invitingly. Solo stared down at her. Wake up, he said coldly, prodding her with his free hand. The Steinmetz exhibit is over. She groaned, eyelashes fluttering. Rise and shine, Denise. We have to talk. She opened her eyes. She swallowed hard, looking at him. What do my ears, they ache so. Yeah, really, mine too. Where did you put it, pet? Put what? She blinked up at him. The smile was icy. The little gadget known more properly as a transistor, probably no larger than a woman's earring. You gonna tell me, or shall I start pulling your arms and legs off right now? Napoleon, I... She started to rise, almost angrily, and he pushed her back. I don't know what you mean. I was in this room, too, she protested. Yeah, he agreed amiably. That's the way your playmates operate, don't they? Which means you can't be very important, or else you goofed personally on the whole setup. Okay, let's play ABC with you. A... My electronic friends tell me that electricity can be converted into sound with a fancy little thing called the Maser, an incredibly sensitive amplifier. B. If that sound had continued, there's no telling what it would have done to your nervous system and to mine, so I stopped the noise by cutting the electrical circuit in the room. C. You have the resistor or you know where it is. Simple. A, B, C. Isn't it? She shuddered, trying to smile. 
What do you think I am, Napoleon? A spy, of course. But don't let that bother you. Some of my best friends are spies. She nodded, hardly hearing him. All right, but you'll have to believe me when I tell you I have no idea about any transistor. Her smile was wan. As you say, they think little of me, or else they think so highly of you, they decided to sacrifice me too. His eyes narrowed. A decoy again. A lovely lure. Nothing new for him, surely. He knew that Denise Ramon had maneuvered him into a defenseless position for the kill. He had known that was her purpose yesterday, when he had allowed her to pick him up. But he had his own plans, like pumping her for information. So who do you work for, Denise? Thrush? She shook her head. I will tell you nothing. All right, we'll skip the third degree. There are other things to occupy my time. Stand. There was no point in browbeating her. He had decided this. She was more than just a lovely woman. Spying was no business for wilting geraniums. Before he could manage to make her talk, her friends would undoubtedly be moving in on him. She raised herself, staring into his face. The deep cleft of her breasts rose as she breathed deeply. She kept her arms rigid at her sides. What is your next move, Mr. Solo? He smiled warmly, but yet faintly mocking. Well, I thought we might call room service for some wine to go with our candlelight. Her eyes flashed. Don't insult me by not being serious. The serious die young, he said softly. She frowned, biting her lip. You must kill me. We, oui, but if you would delay it for a while, there is much I could do for you. In a personal way, of course. You know, I like you too, Denise. So much so, I'm going to make it easy for you. She misunderstood him and let herself insinuate her body a bit closer. She moistened her lips, tilting up her chin. And then he hit her. The blow was short, swift, economical, precisely timed and aimed uppercut that collapsed Denise Fremont neatly onto the love seat. She fell without even a murmur of surprise. He arranged her carefully on the lounge, lowering her lamé gown chastely below her knees. There was no more time for delays. He had risked enough already. He could not encumber himself with lovely lady agents, no matter who they might be. Waverly's cablegram was burning a hole in his pocket. If the Fairmont woman had anything to do with the assignment, he would find out soon enough. Meanwhile, he was in a vicinity he should quit as soon as possible. Thrush, if it was Thrush, had a way of reinforcing its death traps in a hurry. There had been no hue and cry from the rest of the hotel. Perhaps that was a blessing, and, well, perhaps not. Soundlessly and swiftly, Solo packed his sky-blue traveling case and checked the windows. The suite opened onto a sheer ledge above the lit boulevard. Time enough to call in and have somebody pick up the Fairmont woman. His first concern had to be getting out of the hotel with all of his skin, and preferably everything inside of it intact. He glanced at Denise on the lounge, and the glow of the candles on the oak coffee table 
She was beautiful, innocent, and serene. Solo's eyes hardened. He moved toward the door, putting her out of his mind. She was a regret, better left unfelt. He turned the door handle, and nothing happened. He tried it again, but it still wouldn't open. Alarm bells began ringing in the back of his mind. Slowly, he set the suitcase down and studied the door. His eyes traveled around the seaming where the wood met the wall. A feeling that something wasn't quite right or proper filled him. He bent closer to examine the tiny vertical and horizontal cracks that allowed the door barrier to fit perfectly into the design of the room. The door was sealed. No air was coming in from the passageway. It was as if the frame of the portal had been sealed with putty or wax. But it had to be more than that. He took an identification card from his wallet. It was one of several. This one certifying that he was one Arthur Connell, an authorized buyer for an expensive-sounding New York jeweler. And he tried to thrust it between the door and the wall. The card did not pass through the slit. Something was preventing it from finding an entry. It was as if a sheet of metal had passed over the outer doorway. A sliding, scratching sound, as of something traveling with mechanical ease into a slotted groove, made his head swing toward the big windows. Incredibly, he saw the bright lights of Paris wink out as a partition of metal moved quickly across his line of vision and snapped shut with a click of sound like the closing of a cigarette case. A moment later, another sheet of metal closed off the window on the other side of the room, gliding smoothly into its metallic bed. Whirling, he saw the open doorway into the bedroom closed off and sealed by a final metal slab. Suddenly, the room was like a soundless vacuum. Denise lay unconscious on the lounge. Solo stood frozen for the moment. The short hairs on the nape of his neck tingled. There was no mistaking this new threat now. Unless he was badly mistaken, the room had suddenly become an airtight vault. There could be no other reason for the complete sealing of both the doors and windows. Locks would have been enough to trap him inside, but Thrush didn't simply want him as a prisoner. They wanted him dead. He was trapped into a sealed room in which the supply of usable, life-giving oxygen would diminish soon into nothing. Then the silence of the room was broken by a subtle, sighing sound, the sound of air whispering through an opening somewhere. Solo's hand jerked around, following the sound, and then he saw it. A wave of relief flooded over him. Of course, the air conditioning system. Even though they had sealed the immediately obvious sources of air, the members of Thrush had forgotten all the rooms in the hotel had completely up-to-date air conditioning. He smiled as he stepped toward the vent. Such a simple, stupid mistake. But of course the simple things were the most easy to forget. He put his hand up to the vent, and the smile disappeared instantly from his face. Thrush hadn't forgotten the air conditioning at all. Instead, they were using it themselves for there was no air coming into the room. Instead, they were using the air conditioning to steadily suck the air out of the room.
Chapter 3 The Death Room For one wild second, a sense of doom fought to dominate him. Thrush had bottled him up like a mouse in a mason jar, and no amount of bagging away at the lid was going to help. There was no time to lose now, no reason to stop and wonder just how long a man could live without oxygen, or how long it would take for the vent to pump out every last good bit of air in the room. Time enough for post-mortems later. Getting out of the room was the first order of business. He considered the possible means of escape. There was, of course, the telephone, but when he picked it up, he found the line dead. He wasn't surprised. It would be useless to use his machine pistol. No number of bullets could blow that door, nor any of the windows. He silently cursed the lack of any explosive equipment in his suitcase. This was one time he had none of the jelly compounds that could blow a bank vault wall to smithereens. He hadn't expected to have to enter any bank vaults this week, much less that he'd find himself trapped inside one. There was only one chance, the very one that Thrush itself had given him. Solo hurried to Denise Fairmont, where she lay on the lounge. Her head lolled as he pulled her to a standing position. He brought his open hand sharply against her face, slapping her quickly on both sides of her nose. She moaned, and he dragged her to the coffee table. He scooped up the bottle of wine. He held it to her lips and forced the contents into her mouth. The wine sloshed over her face and ran down the front of her gown. Solo paid little heed to this. He wanted this woman awake, sitting up, taking notice. Already he could sense the change in the atmosphere of the room. There was a sudden giddiness in his head, a light, airy feeling, as though he had had too much of the same wine he was pouring over the woman. She stirred and coughed as the wine went down her throat. Come on, Denise, he snapped. Wake up. Come on, wake up. What? What? She sputtered at him, eyes opening wide, blanching when she saw him trying to pull away. He gripped her wrist tightly, keeping his voice steady. Listen, I'm not going to hurt you. Are you awake? Nod your head so I know you understand me. Nod, I said. He jerked her savagely to him. Eyes popped, but she nodded, tongue licking at the droplets of wine on her mouth. Your playmates have walled us up in this room with steel doors and windows. You understand? There will soon be no air to speak of in here. They're sucking the air out through the air conditioning vent. I know of a way we can get out, but you've got to help. Listen. We will slowly suffocate to death without oxygen. You won't look pretty to the undertakers with your tongue sticking out. Where is that transistor for the master device? I have to know or we're both going to die. You tried to trick me. You hit me, she gasped. Nod, I said. Don't waste our air talking. Okay, breathe. Can't you tell? Come on, Denise. Where is it? She read his eyes, and she read the warning there. She nodded, and her gaze swung back to the coffee table. Not on top of it, under it. The candles had already begun to gutter. Warningly, Solo released the woman and darted to the table. He explored its bottom quickly until his hands found a square metal box. 
no bigger than the motor of a tiny music box. Denise Hermont had fallen to the lounge, breathing in short, shallow gasps. Solo ignored her and ripped open his traveling bag. He knew what he had to do, a risk he had to take. There was no estimating the effect of the maser when he let it loose, but he knew what it could do. He scooped his neatly piled clothes to one side and uncovered the shortwave radio set hidden there. He had short-circuited the suite's electrical outlet, but the radio set had its own powerful batteries. He hoped they'd be strong enough for what he had in mind. He placed the maser at the very center of the front door, between the sealed slit and the bottom of the barrier. Then he adjusted the shortwave set, turned it on, and manipulated the frequency button. He pushed it to its fullest power. Then he yelled a last warning at Denise Fermont. Put your fingers in your ears! This is going to be rough! Almost immediately, the wild, throbbing, humming sound of generated noise rose in the stuffy room. Solo held his ears tightly, his eyes never leaving the door. He remained by the suitcase. If it didn't work, at least he could turn the sound off before that killed him first. A small difference in terrible ways to die. But the Mazer was trained directly at the door, and the sound that buffeted him and Denise was only that which bounced off and spread through the room. He watched the door. He felt the room tremble. He could see the furniture in the room start to vibrate weirdly again as the sound waves reached them. He bit his lip, beads of perspiration popping on his brow. It was a million-to-one shot. Could the heightening of electrical current into sound force open the steel barrier? Denise Fremont was again writhing in pain in the lounge, her eyes two beacons of shining terror. But she did not cry out in protest. She knew what was at stake. Solo waited. The furnishings danced. And then a slight tremor shook the door. The hinges seemed to want to move out of their iron hasps. Even with his hands pressed to his ears, the room-filling sound penetrated almost maddeningly. Solo's nostrils and throat ached with the pain of trying to breathe the thin air remaining now in the sealed room. He felt as though he were being strangled. Yet he could not take his eyes off that door. It was like a magic act. Suddenly the door was shaking and the panels warping before his eyes. Then there was a mammoth thunderclap of sound and the barrier had surged outward, crumpling like so much cheap tin and discarded metal. The door flew back, ripping off its hinges, shattering into splinters against the sheet of metal which was disintegrating before it. Groping almost blindly, Solo found the frequency button and turned the shortwave radio set off. The influx of air from the corridor was a buffeting wind, which threw over the candles on the table and flattened the drapes against the far wall. He didn't waste any time looking for the maser device in the wreckage of the doorway. Chances were pretty good it was shattered into bits once its maximum peak of effect had been reached. As for the woman, she was gone. In the decreasing flurry of noises from the blast at the threshold of the room, he could hear her high heels running down the corridor, 
For a fleeting second, he thought he might give chase, but then he shook the notion off. There was only one thing for him to do now, get out of this damned hotel alive before Thrush came back to try again. Shaking his head to clear it, breathing in long gasps of fresh air, he retrieved his traveling bag and stepped quickly from the room. The aftermath of the explosion was reaching that point when rudely disturbed guests would be ringing the desk to see what the hell was going on. Solo took the back stairway out. Twenty minutes later, he had compartmentalized the anger in his mind and found a late cruising taxi cab on short notice. The tinseled lights of the Eiffel Tower burst like Fourth of July sparklers on the horizon. Solo had brushed his hair back, straightened his tie, and assumed the demeanor of a pure tourist. The French cabbie was a gray little man with a wise face and a gold tooth. Monsieur, la bourgette tout suite. The cabbie looked dismayed. You are meeting a plane? None at this time. I'm taking a plane, my friend. The cabbie smiled triumphantly. Mais non, monsieur, there will be none at this hour. Solo frowned. He knew the Paris airport as well as he knew LaGuardia. There were flights nearly every hour. He plucked a crisp 500-franc note from his billfold. Look, garçon, just drive, will ya? The driver turned around to show appreciation of the bill, yet there was a touch of sadness in his eyes. Possibly monsieur has not heard. Let me hear it, then. Le Bouget had a big explosion a few hours ago. The five runways were destroyed. Such a fire. All flights have been cancelled. Do you understand? Yeah, pay now, fly later. Comment? Solo nodded, keeping his face blank. Yeah, I understand, my friend. But don't you realize a newspaper man when you see one? I'll have you know I'm the Paris correspondent for the New York Times. The New York Times! The cabbie's eyes rolled in appreciation of such lofty environs. Forgive me, monsieur, but of course, immediately. The cab leapt into gear, found the main artery of traffic, and zoomed toward La Bourgette. Napoleon Solo drummed his fingers reflexively on the sky-blue tourister sitting across his lap. Here was a calamity piled atop coincidence. A cablegram from Waverly, and a concerted effort on his life. And now he needed an airplane, and La Bourgette was incapacitated. Of course, there might be other smaller fields in Paris, but that was unlikely. What had happened to Stuart Fromes out there in Obertiesendorf? The telegram in his coat pocket was beginning to burn a hole there. Hot stuff, really. Really hot stuff. Hotter than even Mr. Waverley had let on, despite the William de Prado warning. Beyond the cab's window, the Paris night twinkled with warm, friendly stars. At Uncle Headquarters, Alexander Waverley had a visitor, a distinguished visitor whose presence would normally have occasioned the unified popping of assorted flashbulbs and trained questions by batteries of metropolitan reporters. 
No one in this building was even aware of the identity of this particular individual. He had entered Uncle in Waverly's private elevator from the entranceway, which no other man in the organization knew. Only Waverly could ever reveal the fifth unknown ingress of Uncle. Had Napoleon Solo been on hand, he would have been surprised at the difference in Waverly's attitude. It was marked by a definite concern, a worried crease of the gray brows above the strong nose. Waverly's visitor was at the window, seemingly lost in contemplation of the United Nations building, shining in the night. The long, erratic conga of lights lighting up the Queen's skyline hung like fireflies in the far-off darkness. The eternal pipe, in this instance a meerschaum, worked back and forth in Waverly's fingers, revealing his agitation. The man at the window, tall, statuesque, said nothing without turning. Well, Waverly, is there one chance in ten million? Waverly did not turn around either. There's always that chance, of course, he said regretfully. If even that chance is there, then indeed we have something to worry about. I would say so, sir. Frames was not explicit, of course. He couldn't afford to be, under the circumstances. Security has its drawbacks, but... Go on, Waverly, say it. Say it all. This is no damn time for the niceties of protocol and diplomatic bourgeois. Waverly swiveled in his armchair and pointed the Meerschaum for emphasis. Frames gave me enough data to suspect the worst. If Thrust has come up with such a weapon, and there is evidence to support their participation in this business, then we have something far worse to worry about than missiles and nuclear war. The man at the window faced Waverly. His face was hidden in the half-light of the room. You mean that obscure African village, Utongaville and Spareville in the highlands of Scotland? Yes, yes, Waverly said almost impatiently. They can destroy towns like that with a mere thimbleful of the stuff. There's no estimating the consequence. Test towns, pure and simple. Places that would not attract the notice of the world. What else? Typical thrush tactics, sir. We have to be prepared for the worst. The visitor shook himself. His voice rose almost sadly. I have a large, illumined globe of the world in my office, Mr. Waverly, a gift to the people who pay the taxes. Now there is a nation named Thrush in the world. You know it, and I know it. Yet, if we were to examine that globe as carefully as possible, time and time again, we wouldn't find the name engraved anywhere. I've passed my fingers over that globe on country after country, never really knowing which one has become a territory under the domination of thrush. Satraps, my political advisors call them. Satraps were the supranation we call thrush, and they intend to dominate the world. By degrees, they can turn a country into a satrap, or do the same with a school or a hospital or an industrial plant. Who knows? And all we can do is sit and wonder and play international chess while they work underground. Waverly, look, what can we do this time? Waverly rubbed his pipe. 
The recovery of Rome's body is all we can do at this point, sir. No ideas at all what killed him. Well, the laboratory will have to answer that. The acquisition of his body is our first and only step. The distinguished visitor shook his head. I wish I could share your enthusiasm, Waverly. Were the corpse that important, they wouldn't have been so cooperative about returning it, don't you think? It's hard to say, sir. Blocking our efforts to do so might have proved more dangerous. I'm sure you know what you're talking about. I tend to high pessimism these days. The man straightened up. So who's claiming Frome's body? Waverly's gloomy face brightened a trifle. Solo, my best man. Odd name. Well, Waverly, I'd best be going. You'll keep me up to the minute on this, I trust. I have my own VIPs to keep alerted. Of course, sir. Both men shook hands warmly. Waverly? Yes? It's a comfort that Uncle exists. Far greater comfort than I can ever publicly laud or acknowledge. You understand me? I think so, sir. Thank you. Waverly was still fingering his pipe in happy memory of what the man had said, long after the secret elevator had whisked its important passenger down to the underground garage where the Secret Service agents waited. Frome's body was the key to this whole thrush matter, and Napoleon Solo was the man to turn that key.